0: As we saw last several weeks, Paul is writing to young Titus who was left at Crete, an island off the coast of Asia Minor, where he was called to raise up leaders as well as instruct disciples in the faith. And so for the sake of getting the big picture, we start at verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God, And an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able both by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those that contradict. I found that the term ministry is clouded with misunderstanding. If you ask the average person in this country, his visual picture of the ministry, it would be a guy in a black robe or black clothes with a white collar or somebody that speaks in sanctuary tones or somebody that's on that goofy guy in MASH. What's his name? Father Mulcahy. That's sort of their vision of ministry, and it's very unfortunate. Now, last week, I sort of confessed to you that my life verse is out of 1 Corinthians, that God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, and I really mean that. That I think I am simply a good example of God's grace. That God will choose anyone and work through anyone. And I mentioned that by nature I am irresponsible, And yet God has placed me in this position with His gifts and His calling for me to be obedient in this. And it's very ironic that God has done that. But that's, in one sense, the sense of humor that God has. And in another sense, the grace that God has to use anybody. But it's sort of like having Dennis the Menace as your pastor. (laughs) I don't hide it. There's also another term... I've heard full-time ministry and part-time ministry. And I think it's really a wrong distinction. People will say, well, I'm part-time in the ministry. What they mean is, I still have a secular job. I'm earning money, but on the side, my real passion is to serve the Lord, but I'm just doing it part-time. Not true. Actually, all of us are called into some kind of ministry, and it's a lifetime It's all full-time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. From the day you accept Christ to the time you go to heaven, you are uniquely gifted by God to serve in some kind of full-time ministry. Now what we have in view here in these verses is pastoral ministry in particular. As we mentioned last week, what an elder is, what a deacon is. Well, we didn't really discuss that in depth, but we just sort of skirted it, but what a what an elder is, a pastor of a church. That's what Paul the Apostle has in view here. But we saw that the issue is really not education. The issue with God isn't can you speak Greek or Hebrew or theologianese. The issue is an education. Uh, The issue really is an ordination. Well, who ordained you? Was it a Baptist or a Methodist or was it independent? And did you get your master's degree? The issue is qualification. And as you look at the list here, you see that they have a lot more to do with character than they have to do with education or what group laid their hands on you. It's the qualifications of the character of the Spirit. The church that I grew up in spiritually was pastored and still is by Chuck Smith, which I think is the finest pastor in the nation and Bible teacher as well. And Chuck has an interesting format with young men who say, I feel called to be in the ministry. He says he sort of feels it's his God-given duty to discourage them. He says, listen, if I can discourage a young man from being in the ministry, he shouldn't be in the ministry because there's going to be a lot more real hard things that will discourage him later on that if just my words can dissuade him he probably ought not to be there and there are all sorts of trials and temptations and problems and you can if you think about it it makes sense that someone who stands up to speak for god or to lead god's people will be attacked by the devil he's a prime target david was a shepherd boy and seemed to go for years without being hassled by the devil But as soon as the prophet came and anointed him with oil there in Bethlehem, suddenly he became the target of Saul's wrath for ten years and almost killed. That's after he was anointed as king. And I'm sure David was walking around the wilderness of Ziph saying, This is the ministry? I'm almost killed here. I'm almost butchered there. I don't know, God. Why don't you call somebody else next time? This doesn't seem that easy. Now the next several verses, in the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about leaders, elders in particular. You know, when I worked in a hospital, we used to say that doctors are the worst patients. You know, they love to give shots, but give a doctor a shot, it's a different story. They love to give exams, but give one of them an exam, and they're really the biggest babies i found. No offense to doctors, I've just noticed this to be true. Well, it's also true, I think, that pastors are the worst congregations. Oftentimes it's difficult to get a pastor to listen himself to the Word of God. Oh, it's easy for him to give it out. So these things are spoken to leaders. Yes, leaders need to be spoken to and exhorted as well. So let's look at what these qualifications are. Now it's not mentioned in our text, but there's a parallel passage that if you don't have it in the margin of your Bible, you might either want to keep it in mind or write it in your Bible or in your notes. And that's 1 Timothy chapter 3 where he also gives to Timothy the qualifications for those who are spiritual leaders. And he opens up that statement in 1 Timothy 3 by saying, This is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. It was from this text that Charles Spurgeon said the first qualification for somebody to be in the ministry, the pastoral ministry, is an intense and all-consuming desire. If a man desires the position, he desires a good work. An intense, all-consuming desire. In other words, you'll be satisfied with nothing else. Nothing else satisfies. No other occupation in life can cut it like that kind of ministry. Spurgeon, in speaking to his students one time, this is in a book, by the way, called Lectures to My Students. And Charles Spurgeon said, If any student in this room could be content to be a newspaper editor or a grocer or a farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a senator or a king, in the name of heaven and earth, let him go his way. For a man so filled with God would utterly weary of any pursuit but that for which his inmost soul pants. We must feel that woe is unto us if we preach not the gospel, the Word of God must be into us as fire in our bones. I like that. I really like that. An intense, all-consuming desire. In other words, when you really give it the best thought, not just an impulsive desire, yeah, I want to do that. But when you give it the best thought and you think about all of the things it will cost, all of what it means, to yes, I must do that. And so that all... Consuming intense desire. Now, as we look at our text, and we're going to look at verse 6 tonight, he mentions blamelessness as first on the list. He says, If a man is blameless, and this word blameless is sort of the overarching principle for all the rest. Blameless in all of these areas, in his personal life, you'll notice, at home with his wife, with his kids, in his public life, as people are watching him in the church and in the world, but also. Doctrinally, what he teaches, he must be a student that is careful in that regard. So, if any man is blameless, in other words, he needs a godly reputation. Blameless does not mean sinless. It doesn't mean that the pastor will glow in the dark, or if you take his picture, he has a halo on, sort of like the cards of the old saints, that his wings are a little bit bigger than other people's. Blameless has to do with reputation. In fact, I find that oftentimes people place men of God or servants of God or singers of God up on these pedestals that they aren't getting on themselves, but people are pushing them up there and then they expect from them impossible things. They look to them as the the picture of perfection. And that's far from the truth. In fact, this happened in Corinth, didn't it? People were sort of spiritual groupies. I'm of Paul, said one. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Apollos. They were polarizing into camps of which spiritual leader was the best. They were putting them up on pedestals. To be blameless means... To live a life that though you may be accused, there's nothing you can grab a hold of. There's really nothing of substance there that you could lay your hand on. In fact, that's what the word literally means. To lay a hold of. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, it says the same thing. Blameless. The New International Version translates it above reproach. And I think that's a good translation here. Above reproach. I think a good translation also would be a reputation that cannot be called into account, unreprovable and unaccused. In other words, there's no glaring defects in character as it relates to this list. That's the overarching principle of this list. He's an example with his wife, with his children, in doctrine and so forth. With this list, there's no glaring defects in his character. This is vital because... Anybody in leadership gets blamed. Have you noticed that? If something goes wrong with the country, oh, it's Clinton's fault. Before that, if something went wrong with the country, oh, it's Bush's fault. Before that, oh, it's Reagan's fault. Everybody blames whoever the leader is. It's just human nature to do that. And pastors get accused as well. I've been accused of breaking families up because people in services have come to know Christ. They've made a decision, maybe just the wife or just the husband leaving the other spouse an unbeliever, causing friction in the home. You've divided the family. You've broken the marriage. You've set my children at odd against me. And so that reputation without glaring defects. all oh, the accusations may come, but there's nothing that person could get a hold of. Listen again to Charles Spurgeon. He said, Two ministers now, to those in the ministry, pastors or elders, He said about those who would decline in their spiritual walk. As a result of your own decline, every one of your hearers will suffer more or less. It is with us and our hearers as it is with watches and the public clock. If our watch is wrong, very few will be misled by it but ourselves. But if the horse guards or Greenwich Observatory goes amiss, half of London would lose its reckoning. So it is with the minister. He is like the parish clock. Many take their time from him. And if he is incorrect, then they all go wrongly, and he is in great measure accountable for all the sin which he occasions. Now there was a survey taken of different churches around the country, in particular by the American associations of theological schools, and they were asking congregations, in their opinion, what is number one? Two, three on the list of importance of qualifications for someone to be in the pulpit. And someone might say, well, he has to be some great, brilliant intellect. No, actually, across the board, people said number one was humility. Number two, honesty. Humility and honesty. Now, these are character traits that are right up there. People wanted humility. Secondly, they wanted honesty. Third, a good example. And then fourth, excellent in ministry skills. In other words, preaching, counseling, teaching, etc. So, he's to be blameless. That overarching principle. No glaring defects. An example to the flock. Something that, of course, is not always easy. And again, it does not mean perfect. Were any of the apostles perfect? Didn't Jesus say... Now, disciples, apostles, when you pray, you pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He said, Forgive us our sins. And even the apostles were not perfect. They also had to pray, Forgive us our sins, our trespasses. I like what John Stott, again another man who speaks greatly to preachers, he said, However holy or Christlike a Christian may become, He is still in the condition of being changed. So simply put, blameless is you set a pattern, you set a pace, and you have a lifestyle that's consistent with the message itself. And I've got to tell you this, people talk a lot about accountability. Well, you've got to have a lot of people around you to be accountable. I have watched people with a great number of people around them, and if they still want to fall into sin, they do it doesn't matter how many people around you you have. You're ultimately accountable to God. And I've personally found that God has a way to sort of kick you in the spiritual rear end when you're not in line. God's very faithful to do that. He has a number of tricks up His sleeves to get His servants in line and to keep people accountable. Do we need humans around us? Absolutely. But several years ago, as you remember, there was a very famous television preacher who was just released from prison... Jim Baker. Jim Baker had hundreds of people in financial accountability groups and in other spiritual accountability groups. But you know, if you want to fall bad enough or if you want to cheat bad enough, you can do it. The man has to have this reputation of being blameless. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, he said to Timothy, who was probably a little bit shaky because he was younger than people in his congregation, he said, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. And then to the Hebrew Christians, the apostle wrote in Hebrews 13:7, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. I think it's true that people will follow example more readily than they will follow advice. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, these spiritual leaders who were to set the pace for the rest of the nation, He said, you're whitewashed sepulchers. You look great on the outside, but inside you're full of death, corruption. And then He told the rest of the people, the scribes and the Pharisees teach Moses' law. Follow what they teach. In regards to Moses' law. But don't do what they do because they're hypocrites. They're setting the wrong kind of pace. One Saturday night, a young couple in high school went out on a date. Uh, she was a beautiful gal. She was a cheerleader in her school, 17 years of age. A young man took her out. They went out, s- spent most of the evening till very, very late out together. He was driving, but that night they got in an accident, and that young man and that young girl were killed in that accident. The parents were summoned to the hospital, to the emergency room. Now, the girl's mother that night couldn't sleep, because as the young couple were walking out the door, she noticed what looked like a bottle of booze in that young man's pocket. She was worried. She didn't know what was going on. At the scene of the accident, they found an open container and they found that this young couple was intoxicated while driving, partying, and being intoxicated, they got in a tragic accident. On the way back from the hospital, after being informed that the father's daughter had been killed, he became livid, he became angry. He said, if I ever find out who sold whiskey to my daughter, I'm going to kill him. He got home. Being upset, he went to his secret stash of liquor so he could steady himself with a drink. After all, this is a very heavy blow. Instead of finding whiskey, he found a note. Dear Dad, I hope you don't mind. We took your stash tonight. It was his stash. It was his whiskey. It was his habit that aided in the death of those kids. So advice is one thing, but example is another thing. And so again, people will follow your example more readily than they will follow your advice. So, Titus, I want you to ordain elders in every city in Crete, if any man is blameless, with no glaring defects in regard to all of these things that he mentions. A spiritual leader ought to be able to say, as Paul the Apostle said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, "'Be followers of me, even as I am also followers of Christ.'" I've been quoting Spurgeon. I love to when it comes to leaders because he spoke so well to them and he speaks to my heart every time I read him. Again, in his book, Lectures to My Students, Charles Spurgeon said, You must be fitted to lead, prepared to endure, and able to persevere. In grace, you should be head and shoulders above the rest of the people, able to be their father and their counselor. Somebody said an unholy pastor is sort of like a stained glass window. All of the light really doesn't go through. It's clouded, and it's just a religious symbol. It really doesn't serve any great purpose of illumination. It just sort of looks good, but it's not that functional. Then look at how this blamelessness is to be meted out in his private life. In verse 6, he is to be the husband of one wife, and then also having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. The husband of one wife. Now, this doesn't just mean he has to get married. After all, that's not a spiritual qualification. Oh, I'm more called now. I've gotten a wife. That's not any kind of spiritual qualification. The idea here is that he is to be a one-woman man. He's not to be a flirt. He's to be married and committed to one woman. I've got to say this. I've noticed... let Let me go general... In general, a lot of wives feel neglected because their husband's pursuits eclipse the relationship that they have with each other. Oh, he's a workaholic. He's always at the office. Now, what happens in ministry is much the same thing, except it's couched now in sanctimonious terms. Honey, I can't be home ever again for ten years. God called me to be really busy. And oftentimes, his work for the Lord eclipses his relationship with his wife. And many wives feel put out and neglected, as if they're not called at all to the ministry. And so your devotion must be to her, and it must be demonstrated that you are a one-woman man. Dwight L. Moody, that great preacher from Chicago, Illinois, at Moody Bible Church, great evangelist many years ago, said this, If I wanted to find out whether a man was a Christian, I wouldn't go to his minister. I would go and ask his wife. If a man doesn't treat his wife right, I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. What is the use of his talking about salvation for the next life if he has no salvation for this life? We want a Christianity that goes into our homes and our everyday lives. So Paul is telling Titus, this has to begin with the pastor. He has to be a man by example that is blameless with his wife, known as a one-woman man. And if this is true of... Any man that he has to be devoted to his wife, it's certainly true of the pastor. Kenneth Weist has a very literal Greek translation of the New Testament, and he actually translates this, one woman man, or he puts it, a man who is known as a man of one woman. In other words, it's the kind of a guy that has an isolated and centralized love for his wife. In other words, when you see him, you can't help but think about her who he's attached to. They shall become one flesh. When you think of that man, you naturally think of his wife because the two have become one. Um, We uh, will say of certain animals, uh, like Airedales, that they're a one-man dog. They're devoted to one master. And there's several breeds of dog that are just fiercely loyal to their master. You know, this dog only has one master. I mean, he loves all my family, but he's really loyal to me. Because it's in his nature. With that breed of animal to be so devoted. Well, the pastor is to be of the breed that he is so devoted to his wife that there's no question. He's blameless in regard to his devotion to his wife. Now, in Ephesians chapter 5, there is that general principle for all men. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. That's a tall order because Jesus loves the church sacrificially without strings attached, unconditionally. And that's a general description of a husband's love for his wife. Not just a leader's love, a husband's love, a Christian husband's love. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, again, if that's true for the Christian man, it has to be preeminently true for the man of God, the one who is in the pulpit. I put it this way, a successful marriage means falling in love many, many times, over and over again, always with the same person, your wife. Somebody asked Henry Ford, well, what's the secret of a happy marriage? Because it said that he had a long, happy marriage. What's the secret, Mr. Ford? He said, it's the same secret as making a successful car. You stick to one model. And he did. So the pastor must be a one-woman kind of a man. When I first considered marriage, this weighed heavily on me. I really, um, I was scared. Now let, let me put it another way. I was paranoid of getting married. I was just shaking at the thought. Almost up to the time that I was at the altar, the day of my wedding, I was still having second thoughts because I knew that when I say those vows, they're permanent. I don't say, yes, I will commit to you until feelings do us part. Until death do us part, you know, and we'll love each other, we'll be committed, but there's always a back door. If I start getting really ugly, and you start getting that way, well, then we'll reevaluate. People change. Now I knew that I would say until death do us part, and that that would be an everlasting covenant, and that weighed heavily upon me, especially because she always felt called to be in the ministry. Even before we were married, she said, you know, I feel called to be a pastor's wife. And I thought, well, that's good because I feel called to be a pastor. Who knows? God might put us together. And He did. But I remember when I asked her to marry me, it was very difficult because it hit me after I asked the question more than before. I, I had weighed the option before asking her. And I walked into the situation, you know, really scared. And, and uh, I sat her down in her father's den and I started talking about the world, and about ministry. And I'm beating around the bush, and she knew something is up. And I said, you know, life is like going down a street, and there's a yellow light, and then there's a green light, and there's a red light. And it's just so wonderful. And she's going, you know, he's goofier than he usually is. Something's not wired right up here. Then it dawned on her about 20 minutes into the conversation, because I was babbling, sort of like what I'm doing now. She said, he's going to ask me to marry him. So finally I asked her to marry me. So, Would you be my wife? And I did not hear her say yes. So I waited. And I thought, oh, taking her a long time to answer this question. <laughs> finally, she kind of tapped me. She said, I said, yes, I'll marry you. And I just stopped cold in my tracks. And I looked at her. And I looked it deep into her eyes. Then I shot up out of the chair and I walked around and I said, Now wait a minute. We've got to talk about this. We can't just rush into this thing like this. This is a heavy commitment. I was such a flake. Because I knew that when I asked her to be my wife, especially if God would call me into what has been called the full-time ministry, that that marriage must be centermost. In fact, I remember it was Chuck Messer who before we were married, I went to his home when he lived in Newport Beach. He took me aside into another room and he said, the level of success of your ministry will be directly proportional to how you treat this woman. You make her your first ministry. And I said, yes, sir. I mean, it was a stern kind of a (laughs) father-son kind of a talk. Men in general, as well as men in the ministry, love your wives. The best thing you can do for your kids is to love their mother. The best thing you can do for your church is to love your wife. Show that commitment. Demonstrate that commitment. I read a little article by a British author as he was looking at American men and women together. Now, men don't get offended at his surmisal. He described an American man, as, American man as a bunch of weak-kneed, lily-livered sissies. Now, that's a pretty stern rebuke. He went on to say, though, later on, he said, Before, I thought that the women wanted to rule the country. I changed my opinion. Women are compelled to take over, not fighting to take over. I thought the men who attended with their wives some of the seminars that I spoke at would shoot me for my remarks, but instead they all agreed with me. It is still a fatherless society. The husbands are not being husbands and all the women are crying out for a strong man and there's just not any around it's time you know there's men's movements that are all over the country secular world as well as the christian world and i think there's a clarion call to men in the church because historically women have sort of come behind any church activity and said look i've got extra time i'll volunteer and many positions in churches are being filled by women simply because men are lethargic or they're just too busy or there's other things to do. It's time for men to be raised up again, to take that position of being a godly, loving servant to their wives and leader in the church. There's a lot of room in this church for godly men. There's a lot of kinships that we have. We'd like to double and triple them. Men's prayer meetings that could be developed, men's Bible studies that could be taught. Men are needed. Husband of one wife, a one-woman man, a godly leader, first of all, is in love with his wife. Now, this also means married to one woman at a time. I've got to say that because there's a lot of questions that arise with this text. It was common in those days, the days of the New Testament, but even before that, especially the Old Testament, for polygamy to happen. That is, a man to take many wives. That was never the Christian standard. Even though you read about it in the Bible, people say, Gosh, I read about Abraham, and he had more than one wife. God seemed to bless him. Yeah, but was his home happy? That whole thing with Hagar and Sarah, was that great? Uh, No, thank you. And what about uh, old Jacob? Oh, he had Rachel and Leah. Did they always get along together? God, home was miserable. What about Solomon? He had multitudes of wives. Listen, one spouse is enough, one husband is enough, one wife is enough, but to multiply it. And those women led him into idolatry. And because ultimately he was weak, he succumbed to that idolatry himself. Now this text raises a few questions. Number one, can a man be single and be a pastor? Well, I would say this, if he can't, then that would probably disqualify Paul the Apostle. Because he talked about people who would get married, yet he said, Now, it would be good if they would remain as I. Nevertheless, they have the permission in these cases to get married. And probably he once was married, being a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council in Jerusalem. It is thought that his wife left him because of his conversion, his radical commitment to Christianity. And then he was single. He spoke about his singleness and the freedom that he had to preach the gospel. but. If you can't be single and be a pastor, then I would say Paul the Apostle himself was disqualified. However, in certain cases, there's a drawback. A single man being the head pastor of a church sometimes lacks the credibility in the eyes of those who have been married a long time or who have children. They don't feel like they can relate to that certain person. And that is probably why Paul wrote to Timothy, Let no one despise your youth. Let your authority in the Scripture and the zeal and love you have for God eclipse any of the lack of experience that you have in these things. But certainly it is possible. Secondly, what if a man had a divorce? If he had a divorce, does that mean he can never be in the ministry because he is to be, as it says here, the husband of one wife? Well, now this is disputed. Um, There are many who say if a man has been divorced, he could never, under any circumstances, serve as a pastor. I have problems with that, and I've got to say I have problems with one of the translations of the Bible called the New Revised Standard Version, which actually takes liberty outside of the context and the language to translate it this way. The New Revised Standard Version says, someone who is blameless married only once. And I think clearly that's wrong. And I say that because A.T. Robertson, the greatest Greek scholar of our century, said clearly by the language and the context, it means one woman at a time. So the question would be, not can a divorced man be a pastor, but what were the circumstances of that divorce? And the Bible gives only two biblical reasons for divorce. Number one, if there was sexual immorality on the part of that other spouse, maybe in this case uh, his wife, and number two, desertion by an unbeliever. Let me read two passages. One is Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus says, Except for the cause of fornication, or pornea, sexual immorality. That's the only cause for a biblical divorce. That is, if he has been faithful, if his wife commits adultery, if it's unrepentant adultery, he is, she has severed the bond, that doesn't then restrict him the rest of his life if indeed he's been faithful to her in all these areas. And then secondly, desertion by an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul said, If the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances, for God has called us to peace. Then I would also say, If a divorced person can't be in the ministry, then probably Paul the Apostle himself would be disqualified if scholars are correct in assuming being of the Pharisaic tradition, being in the Sanhedrin, being married, which they were required to do, and he was zealously following the Jewish way. And then he speaks of himself as single in 1 Corinthians 7. He must have been married and then probably divorced. Now, that's an assumption based upon history, but it could be that if that were the case, that Paul himself would be disqualified. Now, concerning adultery, before we move on. It is true that some people have a bent toward immorality, either by choice or by habit, or by both. There's a bent, and some women have a bent toward adultery, just like some men have a bent toward adultery. But, when we talk about adultery being a cause for a biblical divorce... That does not mean that the husband has the right to push his wife in that direction. Not showing devotion, not showing love. Now, I'm not giving excuses for this, but a woman needs to feel the security of a relationship. That her husband is devoted to her. That no matter what happens, he will be fiercely loyal and devoted to that relationship. She's secure in that relationship. She's not driven or wanting any other person because the love that he is consumed with for that woman. And so for a person to say, well, hey, she did this, and so, hey, I can do whatever I want. Well, let me ask you a question, bucko. Did you push her toward that? Were you faithful? Were you loyal? Because if you weren't loyal in that relationship, chances are you wouldn't be in another relationship. A third question that would be raised here is what if a pastor's wife dies? And I think it's obvious that if a pastor's wife dies that the covenant has been dissolved as it was dissolved for any other Christian in the New Testament who died, who was married. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, "...for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies..." she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is married another man. A man who is above reproach. No glaring defects. Accusations might be made, but none can be sustained. Nothing that the world or the devil could get a hold of in regards to, first of all, the relationship he has with his wife. A one-woman man. Now, being a one-woman man goes hand-in-hand with the very next directive about the children of that man and woman being godly and not insubordinate. It goes hand-in-hand because children will look at the relationship that the parents have And if it's shaky, they will be insecure. You know, it's funny. um, My son goes to, at this point, a secular school. And uh, if we ever have a school here, hopefully that will change. But right now he goes to a secular school. He has a lot of his friends. Their parents are divorced. And he asks a lot of questions about it. And he feels very secure in the love that Lenny and I have for each other. But it's really interesting because he's asked his friends about, well, how did this divorce happen and what is it like? When my wife and I are discussing something, and uh, we're not agreeing, we don't yell at each other. But if we say, well, you know, I, I disagree with that, and well, what about that? And if it goes back and forth a few times, he'll step in and he'll go, you know, I'm sad right now. I said, well, what Nathan, why? He goes, well, I, I'm afraid you guys are going to get a divorce. <laughs> the best thing you can do for your kids is to love their mother, husband's. And women, to love that child's father, it breeds such a security in the heart of that child. And to reaffirm that with the child, I sit down with Nathan off and I say, Nathan, I want you to know I love your mother. She's the most beautiful person on earth to me. I'll never love another. I want you to know we'll always be together. Do you believe that? Now, that's a big commitment to make to that kid. But it's the same commitment I made to my wife. So why shouldn't it be that big to him? And there's a security that comes in his life because of that. A third, let's just follow that thought down this verse. It's a godly home life is implied by that next section. Having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination. The word insubordination is a word used of horses and oxen who will not tolerate a yoke being put on them. The yoke was that device which controlled them out in a field or down the road. Animals that would buck against any kind of control, any kind of restraint at all. In other words, uncontrollable, unrestrainable kids. A pastor should not have. A one-woman man and faithful children. And again, they go hand in hand. Listen to what it says in Malachi chapter 2. God is speaking to a nation who has left the covenant God made with them and the covenant that God had for the husband and the wife. And God said... Has not the Lord made both of them one, speaking of the husband and wife relationship? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. You see, that covenant relationship you have with God filters down into the relationship a man has with his wife for godly offspring. And for that sake, be bound with that wife, he says. Do not break faith with the wife of your youth. So, the home life of the minister, the home life of the leader, the nurturing relationship that man has with his wife and his children is vital. In other words, he can't be one person at home and one person in the pulpit. He has to be the same. Well, you can see why. What if you would go to a dentist? And he was cleaning your teeth, and he smiled at you, and his were all rotted. (laughs) Now, what would you do if you were in the chair and you saw that? And if you had any sense, you'd jump up and say, Put me down for maybe 30 years from now. Or you probably wouldn't come back at all. William Barclay, who wrote many commentaries and himself trained ministers, so to speak, wrote some thoughts about this section in Titus. He said, In this repeated list of qualifications of the elder, one thing is especially stressed. He must be a man who has taught his own family the faith. Christianity begins at home. It is no virtue for any man to be so engaged in public work that he neglects his own home. All the church service in the world will not atone for neglect of a man's own family. Now, I think that you can see this in many people in the Scripture. If you are to mention Abraham to any child of God, he would say, oh, yes, Abraham, the man of faith, the guy who led the nation of Israel. God selected him to be the leader of the nation. Well, that's half true. That's only part of the answer. God says exactly why He chose Abraham, and it wasn't just to lead the nation. Listen to what He said in Genesis 18. For I have chosen Abraham so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Abraham is to be a leader in leading the nation publicly, but privately is to lead his own home for again the sake of godly offspring. So, the responsibility to communicate to the next generation the truths of God. And let me just take this out of the pastoral directive here for a second. This is God's will for all parents. To pass the baton of faith down from one generation to the next. One of the greatest days of my life is the day when my son said, Daddy, I want to be born again. Really? Now, do you know what that means? Oh, yes. Oh, well, tell me what it means. And he gave me a great answer. And he said, do you want to just... We were driving at the time. Yeah, I said, well, when do you want to do this? He goes, right now. Right, like right now, we're on the road. Right now, so I pulled off the road, got into the dirt, held his hand, and he prayed to receive Jesus Christ, asked God to forgive him of his sins, asked Jesus to come in his heart. And it was Sony. He's done it several times since then. But you know what? I let him each time. Hey, if he wants to pray to God and ask God's forgiveness and get close to Him, great. He hasn't understood faith and grace completely yet, but one day he will. Now, how was that done? That is transmitted, not just by words. I don't sit him down and get a pulpit in my house and go, Okay now, open your Bibles too. But I do look for those unique times that sort of lend themselves to instructions. The times when he's curious about something or something grabs his little heart and he's just curious about an issue in life. I'll be quick to bring God into it. And then I'll ask him a question to see if he understands it. And then I'll ask him, Now, Nathan... What are the things that really bug you about me? What bothers you about daddy? And you know what? He's honest. I'm not going to tell you what he said. I know you're waiting for that. That's between me and him. But since I want him to repent of his sins, I need to demonstrate repentance to him. And say, son, I was wrong in that. I repent of that. Would you forgive daddy? Let's ask God to forgive daddy right now for that. Now, Nathan, are there any sins that you have that you want to ask God to forgive you for? It's by modeling. The old adage is true. Is it not parents like father, like son? They follow in your footsteps. You noticed how the child has certain propensities toward things that are just like you? You'll see your child do something that bugs you and you go, where'd they get that? And either you'll think about it or your spouse will remind you, I think you do that a lot, honey. (laughs) I remember growing up and I would see certain things in my father and say, I'm never going to be like that. But lo and behold, you sort of end up oftentimes full circle, do we not? We watch our parents and those role modeling times get molded and melded into our system. Which means, if we tolerate evil, don't be surprised if your kids do. If you have a bad mouth, don't be surprised if your kids say the same things. If you're ashamed at those words, your kids will be ashamed. You can teach them how to be ashamed. John Locke said, Parents wonder why the streams are bitter when they themselves have poisoned the fountain. So the idea here, as we wrap up this verse, is simply that this above reproach for the spiritual leader, for the elder, for the bishop, for the pastor, all the same office, is that he is to be above reproach. He is to be a person with no glaring defects in regards to his wife. He's a one-woman man. He's devoted to her. He doesn't flirt with other girls or have his eyes on other women. He's devoted to her. He loves her. And she knows it. And he's transferring the truths to his children who are not uncontrollable and unrestrainable. Now, that does not mean, I've got to say this, that... Pastor's kids won't have their trials like every other kids. In fact, as you know, pastor's kids is sort of a stigma that's passed on. I knew when I grew up, some of the roughest kids in my neighborhood were pastor's kids. I got in fights with them all the time. I didn't like them. And so a stigma has sort of been passed on. Pastor's kids are not perfect. And I never want my child to be perfect or to just sort of present him as perfect. He has many flaws. And I want to give them all the space to share those flaws. But the idea here that he's giving forth to Titus and before that to Timothy is that the man of God should be demonstrating the passing on of truth to his children. That spiritual instruction at home is taking place. Like it was with Timothy. Listen to what Paul wrote to young Timothy. When I call to remembrance, 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is also in you. John Wesley said, I learned more about Christianity from my mother than all the theologians in England put together. Isn't that great? I watched my parents at home. That's why when parents dedicate their children, we always not only pray for the child, but for the parents. Because I fear that perhaps parents say, Hey, I've got a kid now. I've got to do something with it. Uh, Oh, church is a good thing. Well, let's have this thing dedicated, prayed for. (laughs) Well, let me ask you a question. Are you dedicated? If you're having your kid dedicated or prayed for, but you don't demonstrate dedication at home, guess what? They're not going to grow up dedicated to Christ unless God intervenes miraculously. Now, we'll pray for them. But we'll also pray that the parents will be dedicated who are leading that child in the faith Supposedly. Case in point, Samuel, a prophet, had two kids who were rats. And he just let them go. He demonstrated his inability to train them and his unconcern for them. Hophni and Phineas were in the ministry operating in an official priestly position. But they caused the people of Israel to despise the sacrifices of God. And it just says in the Scripture that Samuel let this thing go on and it went unchecked. He didn't do anything about it. It's not an easy task to pass on spiritual truth, but God held Samuel accountable because of it. Um, It's for that reason that I just want to let you in on a little secret. I don't want Nathan to be one who is uh, obnoxious, but I tell him, Nathan, you can come in my office anytime. That has bothered a few people. Because a few people have come in and they're pouring out their heart or it's a very important situation. But I want Nathan to know that he's more important than any other person. That woman called his mother, my wife, and that son are the two most important people in my life. And I want to demonstrate that because often he sees me with other people and having time for other people and I want him to know that there's always time and access to him as my child. Just like I have access to God anytime. He has access to me anytime he needs me. I want him to feel that. Now, he's learning the restraint and the parameters of that. But it's something I want him to know by experience. So I say to pastors, and I say to all parents as well, what Billy Sunday said to parents. He said, the best way to beat the devil is to hit him over the head with a cradle. You know what that means? You want to fight the devil? Train your kids from birth. We talk about the devil. Fight the devil then by training your kids. Beat him over the head with the cradle. Godly children, godly offspring. Let's pray right now for leaders especially. The pastors of this fellowship, the pastors of this town and of this nation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight. For those leaders who have influenced us in the past, we no doubt can think of several godly men who have been pastors. Men like David after your own heart. Men who have modeled truth, imperfect, not glowing. Yet men who loved you and shared their humility, their honesty, their character. Father, we pray first of all for the pastors of this fellowship, myself included, that you'd shape us, that you'd mold us to be men of God, men who love the flock of God, men who are addicted to the ministry, but men above and beyond that who are in love with God passionately and then in love with that wife that you've given to us and the children that you've given to us. Father, I pray for the balance of time and devotion. And I pray that our family would experience that and feel loved. Father, we pray for pastors in this town. We pray that You'd raise more of them up, Lord. Men who give their hearts, their souls to minister to people. We pray, Lord, that You'd raise up the standard of holiness and godliness. That You'd strengthen them. You'd encourage them. That other churches in our community, those who... Teach Jesus Christ as the only Lord and Savior and preach the gospel that You would bless those churches, cause them to grow, and cause the pastors to grow as well. Lord, we pray beyond our own city for the same thing for our nation. We pray, Lord, that You'd raise up every single person in this room to some kind of ministry in this generation, in our own church, among children, among women, among men, And that, Lord, you'd also raise up pastors from this flock, as you've already done, that you'd multiply those who have the characteristics, the qualifications in the ministry. Lord, I pray that they would have an intense, consuming desire to do nothing else. Lord, I also want to thank you for the flock here that we call Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque. It is not a place. It is a group of people. love you. What a delight it is to minister among them. What a delight it is to be around people who love the Bible, who take notes, who memorize Scripture, who apply things to their lives, who get involved and committed with so many other people and so many other needs and strengthen the church, Father. We thank you for the time that we've spent together. We pray, Lord, that you would develop strong, intimate, interpersonal relationships between those in this flock, that everyone coming in would feel a sense of love and belonging. Lord, in your word you said that you set those isolated ones, the lonely ones, and you put them into families. Put them into families, kinships, new believers groups, other fellowship groups, Lord or they can be nurtured and loved. Raise up, Father, leaders to be kinship leaders, deacons. We just thank you, Father, for the privilege of serving you and serving your people in Jesus' name.